the presentation of anarchism, anarchism. as social philosophy which aims at the emancipation, economic, social, political, and spiritual of the human race. The Anarchist Essays is brought to you by Loughborough University's Anarchism Research Group. For more information on the ARG, see the link in the show notes or follow us on Twitter at ARGLBORO. The Not So Post Colonial and the Racial Capitalism, a Speculative Nonfiction by Maya Ramnath. This essay is not exactly about anarchists, but it does use an anarchist lens of analysis, namely my lens, which to be precise is the double lens through which I am in the habit of looking at most things, namely the lenses of anarchism and its cousins by all other names and anti-colonialism. For some years, in a leftist coffeehouse of the soul in some kind of liminal interdimensional space, I've been in dialogue with a group of historical figures namely the Progressive Writers Association in India and Pakistan, as they flourished and struggled between the 1930s and the 1970s. Together, we discuss certain areas of shared concern, such as about the role of artists and intellectuals participating in revolutionary change. And though we don't always have the same ideas about what is to be done, we do ask many of the same questions. So it's been a fruitful and activating conversation. In particular, I've been interested in tracking the internationalist dimension of their anti-colonial activities, which carry continuity even across the divides of independence and partition in 1947. In the 1930s and 40s, they oriented their own liberation struggle to a wider anti-fascism, and then from the 1950s through the 1970s, they oriented their liberation to a wider Afro-Asian solidarity during the Cold War era of decolonization. The logic of this continuity was enabled by the recognition that anti-colonial radicals from South Asia and the African diaspora had already been expressing since before fascism was seen as an existential threat within Europe. Namely, that for them, this was nothing new. That the same eugenicist and dehumanizing racial ideologies, the same violence, militarism, and disciplinary technologies of surveillance and control now being so shockingly applied to Europeans, were entirely familiar to those in colonized areas who had been experiencing them for centuries. So highlighting that connection was a way to bring a greater awareness of racial justice to their anti-capitalist colleagues in the North, or the Metropole, while radicalizing the anti-colonial struggles of the colony in a leftward direction to forestall more right-wing nationalisms. So another question I have of shared interest to the progressive writers in their day is this. What happens if you succeed in eliminating your colonial ruler only to find that the work of liberation isn't done, either within the boundaries of your own home ground or in the world beyond it? What if within your home place you kick out the empire but the new regime isn't quite what you had in mind and the revolution you hoped for is unfinished or derailed? What if you had been aiming for far more comprehensive structural, social, and economic transformations, both locally and globally, than a mere handover of the government from colonial to national hands? 
So far, all of this might apply to various contexts, but what if also, to get more specific, what if in the midst of that chaotic handover, a massive refugee crisis is unleashed in a panic of mutually self-fulfilling ethnic cleansing and resorting of populations, not to mention multiple peasant uprisings which are demanding land redistribution and local autonomy, now facing repression not only from the feudal regimes that are on the way out, having been propped up by the colonial power, but also from the newly minted modern state that's taking over. And with all that happening close to home, meanwhile, at the same time, there remain many other front lines of anti-colonial struggle in the world, besides your own, with which you are in solidarity. Yours was only one, and you do love your homeland, but you've conceived your full task as global in scope, linking your own freedom struggle to that of all other peoples in a comparable situation. So that as long as imperial boots remain on any soil of Asia and Africa, the task is clear. What's more, even as many countries and peoples are still fighting to expel their existing colonial rulers, new forms of colonialism are picking up where they left off to give new names and guises to old asymmetrical power relations, economic exploitation, and resource extraction. So the next phase of your task is twofold trying to continue and extend the true liberation struggle within your homeland, and building solidarity to continue and extend the liberation struggle in other parts of the world. Truly, it goes without saying that there is no such thing as the post-colonial, at least so far. There is only an evolution in the forms of colonialism. So it follows that we need corresponding evolutions in our framing of anti-colonialism. To rewind, in the 1930s and 40s, the progressive writers saw anti-fascism as the primary global politics, the key framework in which to locate their struggle against colonialism and capitalism. Then after the 1950s, they saw solidarity throughout the decolonizing world, the emergent third world striving for autonomy in the face of Cold War superpower competition, as the primary global politics and the key framework in which to understand their work. We are now in a distinctly different era of global politics. So my question now to the progressive writers is, in this era, what global political framework now is called for in which to orient the ongoing work of anti-colonialism, anti-capitalism, and the quest for racial justice? At the close of the Cold War, the window of the 1990s revealed the apparent apotheosis of neoliberal capitalism, aka globalization, aka neocolonialism, aka the same old, same old. Relations of dependency leveraged through debt, structural adjustment, austerity, privatization, corporate interests backed up by military might, just like in the old days of the British East India Company. The 1990s version of imperial power without formal empire was confronted by emergent constellations of resistance that came to be known as the global justice movement, alter globalization, or alter mondialism. Retrospectively, there's much today that was foreshadowed at the turn of the 21st century, that is, both right and left rejections of globalism and its effects. But that moment was subsumed into the perpetual global war on terror, which became the primary framework of global politics orienting resistance. And then, now, all issues of war and power have been compounded and escalated by the unavoidably intensifying effects of pervasive ecological crisis. 
So, I suggest that the primary framework we need now in which to continue the work is the racial capitalism. Let me touch on this at both the subcontinental and the global levels. First, the subcontinental. One of the pillars of an anarchist anti-colonialism must be that the establishment of a new state does not constitute decolonization. The nation state form is ill-suited as the vehicle of liberation and equal justice, despite the heroic efforts of B.R. Ambedkar, and is in fact a source of great danger that can perpetuate further oppression. The Indian state has unfortunately done a great job of illustrating what can go wrong. In other words, an anti-colonial analysis of South Asia in the 21st century needs to account for not only external forces such as the history of the British Empire and the projection of American power in the so-called war on terror, but the behavior of the Indian state in the ways that it inherited the geography mapped by the Raj and also much of the imperial government's legal, penal, governmental, and military apparatus. There are many who have seen this state, its corporate partners, and the paramilitary forces that protect their interests as the enemy, exercising much the same coercive relationship of intensive resource extraction, disenfranchisement, and dispossession, particularly in tribal or border regions. For example, separatist movements in Kashmir, Punjab, and the northeastern region, Naxalite militancy in the interior, Jharkhand and Chhattisgarh, Adivasi resistance to land acquisition and alienation in scheduled regions for the purposes of bauxite or coal mining, megadams, deforestation, industrial agriculture, and manufacturing projects. This has been true even under an ostensible liberal democracy or social democratic republic, let alone within an increasingly fascistic ethno-nationalist state that would explicitly define citizenship and personhood as reserved for Hindus while justifying and indeed celebrating violence and discrimination toward Dalits and Muslims. Who knew back in the 1940s that the need for anti-fascism would so urgently return? But to shift to the global, Already by the early 1950s, a progressive literary journal was identifying neocolonialism in its multifarious forms, including American soft power and the strings attached to loans, development aid, and investments. This was very much a Cold War manifestation. Also, in 1951, leading progressive writer Ali Sardar Jafri published the epic poem, Asia Awakens, in which, and please bear with me for a second, despite the fact that amidst his alternately lyrical, historical, political, polemical, exhortatory, and hallucinatory stanzas are images of Lenin and Stalin as paternal saviors and Mao as a godlike hero bestriding the Himalayas, the poem also contains hints at something else. Joffrey personifies the Asian landmass as sentient nature, a spiritually infused landscape of rivers, mountains, and forests in which state borders have little relevance. Instead, he describes a richly multiplex, cross-fertilized civilizational inheritance and a natural geography in which insurgent peasants and the poets who are their organic voice in every generation stand against empires and oppressors anywhere. And in this, perhaps, he's offering me an opening in my critical conversation with his cohort for the racial capitalism. This is a term which qualifies the idea of the Anthropocene in light of the history of capitalism and colonialism. Environmental historian and geographer Jason Moore suggested capitalism as a more accurate term for explaining the human impact on the planet than Anthropocene, 
meaning that the real destructive force is not the human species per se, but the capitalist system. And as political theorist Cedric Robinson has explained in the classic Black Marxism, the making of the Black radical tradition, that that system, capitalism, has always to be understood as racial capitalism, dependent for its growth on producing difference and instrumentalizing it for surplus accumulation through colonization, enslavement, and genocide. Similarly, as Naomi Klein has suggested in This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate, that to fight ecological destruction ultimately requires replacing capitalism, Amitabh Ghosh takes this analysis a step further in The Great Derangement and the Nutmeg's Curse to locate climate crisis and capitalism in the history of colonization. All of which is to say that not all of humanity is equally responsible for the current crises, not all of humanity is equally at risk for its worst effects, and this discrepancy maps neatly onto the history of who were colonizers and who were colonized in the last 500 years. To speak only of South Asia, in the last few years we see the recent catastrophic flooding in Pakistan submerging over one-third of the country, cyclones and coastal flooding in Bangladesh seasonally worsening in destructive force, glacier melt in the Himalayas, source of the great river systems that flow to 45% of the world's population who now face the prospect of their water sources drying up, drought, low monsoon rainfall, leading to low farm yields and famine risk, pollution in Delhi and other Indian cities rendering the air literally toxic to breathe, sea level rise looking to submerge the Maldives, deadly record-breaking heat waves across the subcontinent. Many correctly blame capitalism, the distributive system built by global racial empire for the climate crisis, says philosopher Olufemi Taiwo in his book, Reconsidering Reparations. The colonized people of the global south stand to suffer the most and soonest in the crises before us, and these crises were generated by the processes of colonization set in motion centuries ago. So, anti-racist feminist political scientist Françoise Verges, in a collection on the futures of black radicalism inspired by Cedric Robinson, coined the term racial capitalocene as a way to specify this and historicize it. In ascribing climate change to humanity as a whole, Anthropocene fails to differentiate between those responsible for the historical processes that have led to these problems and those who were victimized by them, namely racial minorities and peoples of the global south. These were the processes that rendered nature, land, and labor, bodies, and lives as cheap, meaning usable and disposable, again in Jason Moore's words, in facilitating the extraction of profit. These were processes begun in the 16th century era of imperialism and then intensified in the second half of the 20th century. Verges says that growing up in the Indian Ocean island of Reunion, quote, I learned early that the environment had been shaped by slavery and colonialism, a reading of space that gave meaning to where cities were built, where poor people lived, and how the large sugarcane fields, rivers, mountains, volcanoes, and beaches had been inscribed in the colonial and post-colonial economy, end quote. The Atlantic slave trade and the colonization of the Americas, forming the crucible for the founding of capitalism, entailed not only the deportation of millions of Africans and the dispossession of millions of indigenous to the Americas, 
quote, but also a massive transfer of plants, animals, diseases, soil, techniques, and manufactured goods from Europe. Capitalism relied for growth on an endless access to nature as excess, end quote, from plants to animals to minerals to coal and oil. In describing the same patterns, the same history, Taiwan names the system based in colonization and slavery as the global racial empire. Drawing on Trinidadian sociologist Oliver Cox, Taiwo understands global racial empire to be, quote, obsessed with hierarchy, end quote. As such, capitalism is not just a system of production, but a global system of social relations structured around a hierarchy of interacting territorial units and, quote, hierarchically arranged interactions between nations, colonies, and dependent communities, end quote. Fierce activist intellectuals Leanne Simpson and Robin Maynard understand all of this deep in their bones, and they put it directly into praxis in their dialogic, correspondence-based book, Rehearsals for Living, part of the Abolitionist Papers series. In his commentary on their exchange, historian Robin D.G. Kelly says, quote, Maynard and Simpson remind us that there is no Anthropocene, only a racial capitalocene, a crisis created by a parasitic class whose power was built on genocide, land theft, slavery, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, prisons, state violence, racially differentiated labor exploitation, and unbridled resource extraction, end quote. Decolonization includes abolition and the movement for black lives, as well as restoring land and sovereignty to indigenous communities who have a very different relationship to the ecosystems in which they live than the one Kelly has just described. Simpson expands on what must be created instead, which is for her already present, long established within her own Nishinaabe culture. Quote, connectivity based on the sanctity of the land, relationships based on deep reciprocity, respect, non-interference and freedom, bodily sovereignty and communal sovereignty. Collectivity is continually generated from individual self-determination and self-actualization based on political processes that allow divergent and minority voices not only to be heard, but to have profound influence." End quote. To address ecological crises, you have to be anti-capitalist. And to be fully anti-capitalist, you have to understand the history and mechanisms of capitalism, which means you have to be anti-colonialist. My friends and foils, the progressive writers, were Marxist-Leninists dedicated to the aesthetics of socialist realism as the aspirational mode by which art imagines, conjures, and prefigures a desired world of justice and liberation. I am an anarchist dedicated to speculative fiction as the laboratory of the radical imagination. So let me speculate. To imagine another alternate history. In 1946 and seven, with the expiration date of the British Raj fast approaching, there were debates about what and whom to turn over the government to. To one state? To two or more states? to a looser and more decentralized federation of provinces, or a federation of provinces additionally grouped into three regional confederations, roughly corresponding to today's India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh? So far, that's not speculative. What about 
a fully decentralized grassroots confederation of autonomous village and municipal collectives mixing agrarian local food sovereignty with artisanal manufacturers. While any major industries needed at the level of commanding heights could be managed collectively by worker syndicates. Even that, I'm not fully speculating as something proposed. And what if these communities were organized through panchayats or village councils that were truly progressive, feminist and caste abolitionist, enabling radically participatory democracy? That part maybe is a bit speculative, but maybe that's not so crazy. See, for example, physicist, science fiction writer, and environmental justice activist Vandana Singh's essay, Utopias of the Third Kind. As I do when engaging with artistic legacies like that of the PWA, Singh views the utopian imagination as a response to colonialism, whether in its settler or resource-extractive administrative form. She categorizes three types of anti-colonial response, leading to three types of imagined future. First, the reactionary, exclusionary, and purist nationalist approach, such as today's Hindutva. Second, a modernist nation-building that emulates the developmental profile of the former Western colonial powers. And the third, which she describes as, quote, grounded in the local, in its geography and social, cultural, ecological surround, but locating themselves in a planetary context, end quote. This type of utopia critically evaluates both its own culture and that of the colonizers and learns from many people's knowledge and ways. The progressive writers, too, by the way, critically assessed and synthesized both modernity and tradition. Singh's favorite utopias are dynamically evolving, syncretic, radically egalitarian, non-hierarchical, and non-capitalist. A key aspect, she tells us, is the interrelationship of humans and nature in a vibrant web. They aren't purely speculative either. She points us toward real-world microcosmic experiments in degrowth and decolonization networked in the global tapestry of alternatives. But her fiction offers a beautiful experiment as well. In the story Indra's Web, she paints a self-sufficient, human-scaled future community inspired by the form of mycorrhizal networks with its biomimetic technologies powered by solar energy and affirming education. It's called Ashapur, City of Hope. A hope such as that which she locates in our own real world as, quote, the defiant, creative persistence of the marginalized, despite great odds, end quote. This is the aspect of abolition, decolonization, emancipation, transformation that require not only resistance, but the daring imagination to remake the world. Maybe in places this looks like restoring land to sovereign indigenous nations in the Americas and to Adivasi peoples in South Asia, not only as an achievement of justice, but as the best way to have those lands ecologically tended sustainably without extractive industry. Maybe it looks like Taiwo's concept of reparations as, in essence, a re-engineering of the system in which we live now. If it is analogous to a system of water management directing flows of resources and costs, advantages and disadvantages which accumulate over time into sedimented conditions, reparations as he asks us to reconsider them are a world-making project creating a different flow system that will result in a different future distribution of advantages and disadvantages. 
Maybe it looks like having the developing countries of the global south be the leaders of the future, not by emulating the intensive extractive energy regimes and consumption patterns of the north or west, but by applying innovative technologies, perhaps combined with traditional knowledge and techniques, toward a very different set of values and goals. Maybe it looks like degrowth or decroissance, a term familiar from André Gors as a reimagining of sustainable social and economic relations that emphasize quality of life over quantity of consumption, rejecting the capitalist logic of limitless growth as a goal in itself as planetary suicide and spiritual depletion. I also associate that idea with Grace Lee Boggs and James Boggs, another genealogy through which we can make a connection between the late 20th century decolonization and racial justice movements and the move towards sustainable communities, food sovereignty, urban agriculture, and collective self-sufficiency. Or maybe it looks like something just quivering on the edge of imagination. P.S. To come full circle in my ongoing dialogue with interlocutors of the past, it thrills me to note that what we're doing here is akin to the radio programs that founding Progressive Writers Association member Mokraj Anand teamed up with George Orwell to do at the BBC during the 1940s. I look forward to comparing notes with them in my interdimensional leftist coffee house. Come to think of it, maybe that coffee house is actually a community cantina in Vandana Singh's Ashapur. Thank you for listening. To help others find Anarchist Essays, please rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're interested in anarchist ideas, why not check out the journal Anarchist Studies? For over 20 years, Anarchist Studies has been publishing original research on the history, theory, and practice of anarchism. For more information, visit www.lwbooks.co.uk forward slash anarchist studies.